Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic evening for you. We've kicked off this program. Uh, flying is coming back. That's the great, great news about it, with uh, uh, all sorts of things opening up in different parts of the country as the crisis slowly, slowly abates a little bit. Um, it's been just wonderful to see things open up just in our neighborhood, in our neck of the woods here outside Boston. As of Monday, flight schools have opened up. Uh, they have uh, at least the one that uh, we've been dealing with has really good procedures for cleaning aircraft and transitioning back and forth between the students and the renters. I know that um, uh, one of my sons, Jake, that is getting ready for his check ride and uh, was just about to take his check ride before this all started, is picking that right back up. He'll be flying tomorrow and getting to his license as quickly as possible. And with that, what I'd like to do is uh, share this image here, which is our aviation social distancing, stay one propeller apart. And I would like to encourage anyone with any organization, club, or EA chapter that you work with, um, if you'd in any way like to use this image, just email us. And even if you send us your logo, we'll add it to this and you can use it as well because we want to spread the word to support flying, to get people back in the air using safe social distancing so that we don't have another... Uh, a recurrence of the crisis so that we can uh, keep this on a positive track and keep supporting general aviation. With that, I'd like to jump to our next thing, which is our program of takeoffs for takeout. And takeoffs for takeout was designed from the very beginning of this crisis to support general aviation businesses and uh, to uh, make it, so let me just make sure that's all active, to make it so that um, we can support those businesses that are so vulnerable in times like this and help both restaurants stay open through takeout practices as well as FBOs, pilot shops, pretty much everything. And it's been really fascinating during my own travels to see how well our world has adapted to this, whether it be paying using credit cards for uh, everything in advance, whether it be your food or your fuel, uh, and everything being contactless, watching how the FBOs have instituted procedures to clean things. It really has uh, changed our world and I think done it in a very positive way that will um, uh, help reduce any chance of transmission and making, the, uh, uh, making things worse. And so during that, of course, we've had this competition and I'd like to announce uh, one, an entry here, Damon and Dana Overbo and their dog Heat from Springfield, Missouri, uh, Lake of the Ozarks, who did this really fascinating flight. And uh, Damon sent me this story that of his flight, which was really fascinating. They took off uh, in their plane and they went and they decided they were going to go and, and support a local restaurant that was Mexican and had uh, all sorts of fantastic Mexican food there. They flew there and uh, en route, one of the things they were able to do is to see this wonderful sunset. On their way back, they were able to see an amazing fire that was actually happening. And those are contrails that you can see in the back in that picture. Well, while they were on the ground at, the, at that destination, another pilot showed up and um, 
what uh, he uh, had expressed is that he had landed as thinking that the FBO was going to be open for uh, fuel and there was no fuel. And so as he was kind of debating this other pilot, what he should do and whether he was going to take off with minimum fuel, uh, Damon certainly thought that was not going to be a good idea. And the other problem was this pilot's cell phone battery had run out and he, uh, so he had no way to communicate as well. Uh, Damon and his wife helped out. They were uh, fortunately able to get the uh, uh, airport manager uh, through an emergency line to come over. They got it open. They got this guy fueled. So there was no uh, accident chain to happen. The accident chain was broken by breaking the link of even having to make that hard decision of do you take off with minimum fuel to hop to another airport. We all know that can uh, show up and, and become a problem down there. It's not a risk worth taking. And so was really, really impressed at the way that that all worked as well as supporting like uh, local restaurants and our take us for takeout program. And so because of that, I hope Damon's listening tonight. We'll certainly reach out to him directly, but he is the winner of this actual uh, version of take us for takeout. He, Damon has won a Lightspeed Aviation Zulu 3 ANR headset. It's an absolutely fantastic headset. Very, very excited for Damon and Dana Overbo. So, with no more ado, I would like to introduce our featured guest of the evening, Corey Robin. Uh, he is an aviator, creator, flying cowboy, the founder of the Flying Cowboys, if you've seen this. He's from Salt Lake City, Utah. His aircraft is known as Ghost. It's a home-built Cub Crafters Carbon Cub EX, flown to Alaska, the Bahamas, Mexico, all over the United States. With 4,002 hours in Bush-type aircraft and being the 2015 winner of the High Sierra Stoll Drag World Champion and founder, of course, as I said, of the Flying Cowboys. You can <laughs> find Corey Robin out there on YouTube, all over the internet, or traveling. Corey, welcome to Social Flight Live. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> There's a <laughs> lot of people online. I'm watching these numbers tick up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope I'm a good ambassador for uh, all the people that love bush flying and backcountry as much as I do. Corey, you're here because you are an ambassador for that and also for everything general aviation. And that's why I thought it would be such a great opportunity just to, to get to get together this evening. You know, this whole program's all about... Um, helping pilots through the crisis and inspiring people to participate in general aviation, to keep your spirits up and fly as much as you can. But it's also all been about education. And I have to say, I am so absolutely enthralled with the videos that you do and some of the amazing places that you fly. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, first, before I really, we really get into that, I want to thank you. I've really followed a lot of your live streams and, you know, whether it be Jack Pelton or really any of your guests that you've had on, it's been um, an amazing release for me or to, you know, escape or whatever you want to call it. So I want to really thank you for, for doing these videos and this series. It's, it's uh, off the chart amazing. And uh, I think you and I have a lot of commonality in our general aviation promotion desire. And uh, so thanks for doing this. It's really awesome to, to see all the content that you're pumping out and, um, but with that said, yeah, I do have fun in my bush plane. <laughs> so let's go back. Tell me a little bit about how you evolved your kind of aviation life story. I know you run an aviation-based company for airlines, essentially. Um, tell me a little bit about that and tell me how that story came about to get you into this particular segment of flying where we teach people a little bit about what's involved for themselves. 
You know, gosh, I've done a lot of different types of flying, whether it be for, you know, flying warbirds for commemorative air force. Um, I, when I was a young, crazy teenage pilot, I had a Pitts S1S. And in fact, I competed at one of the very last aerobatic competitions at Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I don't know if any of the old timers remember the old, the granddaddies of aerobatic competitions. I was never any good at it because I didn't have time to practice because I was going to college and, you know, trying to figure my, my life out. But, you know, I really enjoyed the, the challenge of the stick and rudder flying. And so it's, it's no mistake or it's, it's not surprising to me that I've, I've kind of stayed to that. And backcountry flying is, is really seat of your pants flying by feel and stick and rudder. It takes you back to those fundamental skills that you learn when you're taking your private pilot uh, courses, you know, turns around a point, terrain flying, just all the basic skills. Now we've amplified those and, you know, we've taken them kind of to the extreme with stole and with backcountry and landing in ridges or in canyons or whatever the case may be. But um, really there's no magic or mysticism or crazy amounts of piloting skill you need to get involved in backcountry. I think one of the reasons why I really connect with it myself is I've always been kind of a uh, really into being outside and being one with nature, whether it be when I was a kid and I was, I was a professional cowboy for a couple of years. And I, Wait, I, I, I think you were a I professional think, cowboy for a couple of years. Yeah, I, I ran cattle. Basically, you move cattle from one grazing area to another grazing area and, you know, you monitor the health of the animals and, um, you know, you, you just, you're outside all the time. You sleep under the stars 300 days out of the year, whether it be winter or whether it be summer, you're just outside all the time. And um, so I've, you know, getting into the backcountry flying was just natural for me because I just loved being outside. That's fantastic. And, and it, so let's talk a little bit about your aircraft that you've kind of evolved to. I mean, you, you rattled off an awful lot of aircraft like, like they were nothing. But um, certainly you evolved from the Pitts world. Now, did I see prior to Ghost, you had a Wilga? I did. I had a, a PZL Wilga 35. Now, everybody knows the Draco Wilga, <laughs> which is Mike Petey's turbine-powered, fire-breathing monster. Well, mine was completely different than that. And it was the radial engine version. And it started off pretty stock when I purchased it. And I, I went through two engine changes um, with it and ultimately ended up with about 400 horsepower on the nose. Um, but it by no means was a Draco. But it, it, uh, it was a good, it was an okay backcountry airplane. It had its quirks. You know, people would often ask me, how does the Wilga fly? Because it's such a different and unique airplane. And I said, well, about the way it looks. <laughs> it flies a little bit different, has its quirks, it has its personality. But I really did fall in love with the Wilga. In fact, Mike Patey and I, um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of Wilga brothers in that, you know, he had a Wilga and then I had a Wilga and then he got a Wilga. And so, you know, we just, you know, we really love the aircraft and it's a, it's a very great it's a great airplane. It's just different and unique and it's got a great ramp presence and um, just super fun airplane. I like how you talk about such a completely unique and almost outrageous aircraft as just the regular Wilga because you're comparing that to Draco of all things. It's like Batman <laughs> talking to Superman and saying like, hey, you know, I'm just a normal guy. It's like, I can't fly. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, I, you know. yeah. But it's not like you see a Wilga <laughs> at every airport. 
Um, no, so, you don't. So let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, the, there's two sides, it seems, to all of this backcountry flying and stole competitions and everything. One of them, of course, is the aircraft, and the other is the pilot and what you're able to actually do with it. It seems to me, or let me actually ask that question instead of even supposing it, um, is there a continuum? Can you approach backcountry flying starting with kind of just the, the more average average aircraft before you get all the way up to having huge Tundra tires and modified aircraft slats and all sorts of things going on? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a, I don't know if it's a misconception or a stigma, but I do get these questions a lot. And really what my goal is through my videos and maybe I can do a little bit better job at answering this question, but you really can get started in any aircraft. Really what backcountry flying comes down to is your fundamental skill set as a pilot. And it's not necessarily the aircraft that can get you started. Mm-hmm. I've seen people in the backcountry in all different types of stock certified aircraft from Moonies to Pipers to Cessnas. So, and, and now we've just talked about the bread and butter of general aviation. Um, and, and so you can get started in really any aircraft. There are grass airports and dirt airports all over the country. In fact, gosh, I'll have to dig it up, but I published a, a listing of, of off airport or not, that's basically non-paved airstrips. And there were somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2000 non-paved airstrips that are FAA designated airports. Really? And so really what it comes down to when you're operating on a rough surface or you're operating on a airport that is in a Canyon or whatever the case may be is you've just got to be a little bit more brushed up on your pilotage, your, your flying skill your ability to spot land, your ability to do a soft field, your ability to do a short field, your ability to do an obstacle clearance. These are all fundamental skills that you learn in your private pilot. There's no craziness or mysticism to it. In fact, backcountry airplanes predominantly are the easiest to fly airplanes. I fly a Super Cub. doesn't get much easier than that. So to get started in, in backcountry flying and, and to get out there, really the best thing you can do is just focus on your skill set. Next time you're out practicing, set your standards a little bit differently. Maybe land on a spot instead of just kind of, oh, if I maintain center line, I'm okay. Maintain that center line, but hit a line. Right. And so now you're landing on a spot you're, you're also maintaining your discipline on your centerline control, and you can do that in any aircraft. And that is a skill that you can develop and hone and get to the point where you're very comfortable doing it. And then when you land on a goat trail or something on a ridge, you know, it's a little bit easier because you've worked your way up to it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and obviously, uh, um, you know, I'm going to have to talk to uh, Jolie Lucas, our common friend, about using her Mooney in the backcountry. I'll see whether that <laughs> becomes a separate thing. Go land on some ridge. Uh, but realistically, I mean, I think of like a Paul Morell, who's a social flight team member that's got a, a kit box and, uh, they, you know, he can do all sorts of things with that at different levels. But what you mentioned there and what I'm really hanging on is that step by step working on your flying proficiency so that you can kind of work your way up through different backcountry places that you can go. And so another thing that comes to mind is, you know, what it, it would seem that there's a level of this 
that uh, mentorship really helps with because you're not going to you're 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 going to places that are known to begin when you're getting started and you're going yeah. to places where someone's guiding you and i've even seen it at your level which obviously you're going you know really up to the expert level uh during some of your videos it shows hey you're following someone who's been there before there, there's it's it's not even at the expert level it doesn't seem to be all about spotting something that no one's ever been to doing a low pass to see if it's safe and then going down. Right. Right. And you know, the, gosh, I hate to even, I don't even consider myself an expert. I'm learning something new every time I go out and fly, but you know, really to, to, to break it down, the community is, it, I mean, general aviation in general has such a special community. We're all there supporting each other. We all want to be safe. We all want to be proficient. Uh, but there is, you know, I hate to say it, but there is something special about the backcountry uh, aviation community, whether you're up in Alaska or you're in the, the West or you're in the Pacific uh, Northwest or you're back East. There are backcountry pilots everywhere. Heck, I was, I picked up my airplane when I first purchased it in upstate New York. And one of the first airplanes I saw next to it when it had small tires was a big 35 traditional super cub with big 35 inch bush wheels like I have on my airplane now. So you can find bush pilots everywhere. Right. And somebody's always willing to give you the advice or take you into a strip. But there's also a lot of designated airstrips that are really suitable for almost any aircraft. And, you know, you mentioned Jolie Lucas. She's got a nice M20 Mooney. And I've seen an M20 Mooney at Johnson Creek, Idaho, several times. I've seen a Mitsubishi MU2 in there. I've seen all <laughs> kinds of aircraft. And But we're talking about a beautiful, it's like landing on a golfing fairway. Right. It's a, you know, 3,500 some odd foot long airport that sits at about 5,000 feet. And uh, there is a little bit of canyon flying involved, but if you're comfortable landing your aircraft, you you should be comfortable landing in the backcountry on a on a fairly novice strip. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to um, you know looking at what the procedures are, maybe watching a YouTube video or talking to somebody who's done it before. The best thing to do is to just get out there and do it in a safe manner. And there are even schools that will teach it. My good friend, Kevin Quinn in Truckee, California has a backcountry focused flight school in McCall, Idaho. McCall Aviation has a flight school. My buddy down in Nevada, uh, CC Pocock has, you know, Bush Air. He's got a flight school that focuses on backcountry. So if you're if you want to take it to a level that is beyond your current capability and your current skill set, how do you do it? You practice. You get in an airplane and you do it. The best way to do that is with a competent instructor right there at your side, uh, as with anything. And so that's what I always recommend people do. You know, focus on your fundamentals, get, get your core competencies down, get on the runway and practice those spot landings, maintaining directional control, heavy braking, soft fields, obstacle clearance, and then take it to the next level by getting a good instructor and, and then getting out there and doing it. It is so much fun. And I invite everybody to come and join the party. Yeah, that <laughs> is, that, it's really, it's so fascinating. And I, and again, I'm a huge fan of the videos and watching all the different adventures that, that you do with that. Now, what, tell me a little bit about the, it, it seems like you've got to combine both the command of the aircraft for the type of flying you're talking about it, it, but most of this we're talking about the landing and the takeoff portion, but there's also a lot of mountain flying, of course. I mean, you, it, where you are, you, 
you're in the playground of all yeah, sorts of amazing yeah, places to go. Um, tell me a little bit about that aspect of the flying. You know, there's a, a course I took, gosh, I must have been 20 years old. It was, I think, in, when the FAA Wings program was brand new. And it was a mountain flying course at a local university here in the Salt Lake City area because obviously we're surrounded by 11,000 foot peaks in all directions. Hmm. Uh, so mountain flying is part of the course when it comes to learning how to fly here in the West. So, you know, I obviously took the course and, and you learn right. the basic things like mountain wave, reading wind direction, you know, uh, descending and rising air, turbulence, all kinds of things that can, if you really don't know how to read those types of conditions, um, it really can get dangerous really quickly. And it's not necessarily something you need to have a fear for. It's something you need to have a healthy respect for and a and good old fashioned understanding. Right. Um, you know, as a backcountry pilot, it's rare to see a, a seasoned backcountry pilot flying in bad conditions. You know, we typically will go flying early in the morning when the winds yep. are calm and the air is a little bit thicker. Um, and then in the afternoon when the winds kick up, we're around the campfire. We're around the barbecues and we're, we're, we're hangar flying at that point or backcountry hangar flying. I don't know. Maybe we have to find a term for that. But. Campsite, campsite flying. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's, that's, that's one of the things that I think, uh, you know, I just think backcountry aviation makes you a better pilot all the way around. And I see people from all different types of, of aviation background, whether you're flying a premier jet in your full-time job or you're an airline pilot or you fly float planes, um, the skill set and the knowledge and, and learning how to do the mountain flying, learning how to read the weather at a little bit more advanced um, manner. Uh, because a lot of the time you're, you're, you're landing off airport and there's no runway. There's no numbers on these little goat trails or little ridge tops. How do you find out which direction the wind is blowing? There's some mm. fundamental skill sets that uh, teach you how to do that, but also make better risk management type decisions. And, you know, is this the day for me to land on that spot that I've been kind of looking at? Because that's one thing you'll find about us backcountry pilots or stole pilots is we're always looking for the next awesome spot to land. <laughs> we're always hungry for that, that next landing um, or the next camping spot. And you kind of imagine, oh, I'm the only pilot that's ever landed here before. And then yeah. you see the old, you know, the, the, the old airmail arrows in the ground and you're like, oh, well, somebody <laughs> else did it. But yeah, you get there and then you find a couple airplane parts on the ground and that's a little testament that someone's been there before. <laughs> right. It, it really is. You know, I don't know that there's very much uncharted territory in, in the, in the United States anymore, especially, uh, you know, the, you know, where one of the, the skills that you need to develop as a backcountry pilot pilot is knowing where it's legal to land. You know, there's a lot of public lands. There's a lot of private lands. There's a lot of gray area lands, which I tend to stay away from, but typically BLM land that's not designated as a wildlife refuge or study areas or whatever the case may be. Um, mm -hmm. A general rule of thumb for me is if other motor vehicles are allowed there, then most likely I'm okay to land there, but not right. all the time because I know that, you know, there's several backcountry pilots that looked at the charts, looked at the hunting apps that, you know, we all fly around with different land ownership maps because, Oh, that's a cool spot. Can I land there? So we're checking our little GPS apps. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, learning to read those conditions, learning how to do it legally, how to do it safely is really what it's all about. And, you know, staying within those safe boundaries makes it a lot more fun, especially when you're in a group of people with a diverse skill set. Right. You know, I lead a group of people to Oshkosh every year. Uh, I've been doing it since, gosh, I think the last 15 years. And it, it's we've had big years, we've had smaller years, and I've tried to keep it as small as possible because, you, you know, you start doing flight planning for 20 different airplanes, it becomes unwieldy. But, you know, we're often landing all kinds of fun locations on sandbars and different things like that and different skill sets. And so we try to set things up for the most novice pilot in the group. So it's comfortable for everybody. Right. And uh, you'll find that in aviation or in the backcountry community is everybody wants everybody to be safe, but we all want to have fun. Right. You know, yeah. one of the, the things that I absolutely have always loved about aviation is that idea that not that we're combining community with this thirst for knowledge and proficiency that we have this camaraderie but we're also focused so much on perfecting our craft which we never perfect we just keep getting better and better and better if we're doing it if, if that's our spirit and that's what you've talked about like it it the same things that you're talking about about being on speed and know and all of that that matters in all sorts of different conditions whether you're in the back country or not um, but obviously it matters a heck of a lot more when the stakes are high and you're alone and landing somewhere pretty far from, from nearest, uh, nearest other sign of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, tell me a little bit about ghost. I mean, uh, people uh, obviously we're here because we love airplanes and right. uh, uh, you're that that's a, a hell of a plane. Have you made any changes? I mean, you built that uh, from the kit yourself, correct? No, it, it is a home-built airplane. I did not build it from scratch. I've done lots of modifications, but a, a gentleman back east built it, and I picked it up basically as he was finishing up his, his fly-off, his 40 hours. Okay. Uh, so I picked it up right at, right at 40 hours, picked it up. Um, it is a Carbon Cub EX, so it was their very first revision of the Carbon Cub. It's my favorite version of the Carbon Cub. I know that they've made lots of changes and different tweaks and stuff for different, you know, with the, the EX3, it's more horsepower, constant speed propeller. With the EX2, it's lighter aileron control. Um, but, you know, the EX to me is just my favorite version of it, and I've flown them all. Uh, and mostly probably because I've just customized it. It's like, a, it's like mine now. So I've got yeah. the big tires. I've got the big shocks on the thing. I've got a tail shock. I've even adjusted the, uh, the washout on the wing so that the stall wow. characteristics are how I like it. Um, the VGs are relocated a little bit differently. I've got some tail modifications that I've done. So it is really a custom airplane uh, that's, that's really tailored to how I like an airplane to perform. Um, I don't mind a, uh, a, you know, a little bit of a wing drop in a stall. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've taken that, uh, you know, in certified airplanes, they kind of tilt the wing tips downwards a little bit, you know, some as aggressive as a couple of degrees or three degrees in some aircraft designs. And I've taken a little bit of that out. And the whole purpose there is so that they, uh, the, the wing tips stall last. And so you'll have a stall that kind of starts to develop in the root of the wing and then develops outward. And that really prevents a wing drop in the stall. I might be getting too technical, but no, um, how I like my airplane stuff. to stall is, is just a good clean break. And if I'm, if I'm uncoordinated and that wing drops, well, that's my fault. 
That's because I was uncoordinated. And I don't mind that at all because I've, co- I've become very, very comfortable with my aircraft. But, um, you know, we're talking about an airplane right now. I've got my airplane stalling right around 27 miles an hour. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> we're talking about airplanes that are super, super extreme. And mine's not even close to as extreme as some of the real pros. Like we're talking about Steve Henry and Hal Stockman. And you've got these these real bush pilots up in Alaska. I mean, heck, I, all I do is make YouTube videos and I play around with it. I don't do it for a living. Um, you know, so, so my stuff is just purely for recreation, but you've got guys up in Alaska, like 170 mafia. That's a good crew up there. And you've got guys in California doing really extreme stuff. Mine's kind of more of a middle ground. I like to travel in it a lot. Um, it's really just set up the way I like my mm-hmm. airplane to fly. Um, it's, it's, you know, bush planes are so cool. I'm not a fan of any one design. I'm not any fan of one make or model. I'm not a purist. Uh, you know, you have to have a tailwheel airplane in order to fly in the back country. Now they tend to do a little bit better because tailwheels take more punishment than nose gear. Mm-hmm. Typically on in aircraft design, they're not designing a lot of nose gear airplanes for the back country with the exception of the new carbon cub that has a nose wheel and right. some of the Zeniths and, you know, some of those that are designed for it. What is it? The Katma? Uh, uh, the, the, there's a there's there's a crazy conversion with uh, yeah, the Katma. Yeah, they yeah that's a they put a crazy wing canard on there yep. and do a big horsepower increase to handle that ad- additional horsepower and a weight. Huge but, nose gear, nose wheel, and a oh, yeah. nose wheel, a canard theoretically to help keep it up. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're so proud of it. I love those airplanes. They sound so cool. You know, that's one of the, I love being, um, you know, when I'm in the backcountry camping and there's other pilots with me, one of my favorite things is listening to the Cessnas. The Cessna guys are the guys that want to wake up early in the morning and they're excited to fly out to breakfast. And then those prop tips on those MT propellers are going supersonic because they all have to have an MT propeller or a Macaulay. (laughs) Those are the high performance ones, right? But they just have this unique, sound to them that echoes off the canyon walls and man it is music to my ears that's my time to get up out of the tent and get my own airplane started wow so how did you uh, get like get to that point where uh, or how how do you get the knowledge to start making some of those changes that you've talked about uh, how much of it is it through community and people who own the same type of airplane and those groups? How much of it is other technology folks uh, uh, you know in the industry or how much of it did you just come up with on your own you know, I, I would love to say that I came up with any of it on my own, but I am not that guy. So <laughs> <laughs> really what it comes down to with my particular aircraft and the modifications that I've put on it is just being very observant to the guys that are really doing it. You know, the guys doing these crazy 20-foot landing rolls at the Valdez Stoll competition. And what are they doing with their cub? Guys in, like in Idaho, there's this master, his name is uh, Toby uh, Smith, and, or Toby Ashley, excuse me. Toby Smith's another one of my friends in Nevada. But uh, Toby, um, he has a carbon cub, and he has that thing just absolutely dialed in and so when he starts to talk i just listen to understand <laughs> yeah uh, because he he actually won the the reno air races in uh, in reno we had stole drag at the reno air races which was wow we're racing bush planes head-to-head yeah. drag race style at reno how cool is that yeah but 
you know, for him to go up a guy like Steve Henry, who flies a Highlander, which is also heavily modified, Steve yeah. Henry can take that airplane off with the wheels locked. He's got so much horsepower. That's <laughs> unbelievable. But, you know, watching guys like that modify their carbon cubs, and I just kind of take notes and mental notes and kind of figure it out. Um, you know, and I'll ask them, what did this mod do? What was the result of that? And you'll find that a lot of the guys that are really, really into it, they really know their stuff. Yeah. Um, especially those guys up in Alaska that are doing it for a living. And they're not doing it to just have a great performing airplane or to do it for competition. They're right. hauling out 400 pounds of moose meat in a super cub with full right. fuel. And so you're, you're talking about guys where they're flying and their life depends on it. And these are fantastic modifications. And then you, you know, then you rely on the manufacturing side of it. There, there is a big bush flying community, backcountry flying community supported by companies like Airframes in Alaska, right. um, Acme Aero, Shock Monster Shocks. And these are guys that are out there innovating, building components for our aircraft and, and really doing it. And they're the masters. You know, I'm just a guy that plays with my airplane and makes YouTube <laughs> videos. I have no claim to being smart about any of it. You know, I can only tell you what I've done, um, but by no means am I a, a technical wizard like, you know, I'm not a Mike Patey, right. for example. That guy's well, you're, just, you're, you're very, very humble, but let's talk about the, some of the stuff that you have done because I'd like to get, let's start talking about the Flying Cowboys, and then we'll get into huh. some of those events, including stall drag. So okay. tell me a little yeah. bit about, you started the Flying Cowboys, What's it, and, and now uh, well, you gave me a little bit of history that you were a cowboy, so that all of a sudden, now, now, <laughs> now we, we got a little piece going into place. You know, I, I don't know if it's actually fair to say that I founded the Flying Cowboys. Uh, I think that, I don't know, everybody kind of has their own Flying Cowboys origin story. And how the Utah guys got started is we do... You know, I when I was a professional cowboy, I never really lost touch with the ranching community. And so whether you're in uh, southern Nevada, anywhere in Utah, Wyoming, um, I, I know almost all the, the, the cattle, you know, the beef producers. And so a couple times a year, uh, me and um, uh, the Patey brothers, Jason Sneed, Wally Brown, we would go out and, and help with Roundup. And so what, what Roundup is, is uh, with this particular ranch is they really have two locations where they, uh, they manage their herd. And one is on low terrain and one is on high terrain. And so uh, twice a year, they're, they're moving the, the cattle from one location to another. And they have a whole slew of professional cowboys that they contract out for Roundup because it's kind of a big operation to move you know, four, five, six hundred cows from one location to another. And you've got, you know, adolescents and baby cattle in there along with the adults and the bulls. And there's all kinds of logistics. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's not just moving the cattle. It's getting the cowboys where they need to be. And there's canyon flying involved. There's a there's high ranch, there's low ranch. And so, you know, it just really depends. And so we kind of got the name Flying Cowboys by just doing volunteer work. We just do it for fun. We don't charge any money. It's just fun to go out and camp under the stars in, in a beautiful canyon and help out your neighbors, essentially. Yeah. And sometimes I'll get a call from one of these ranchers in the, in the dead of winter, and they'll have me take pictures, or one of us. It depends on who's available. But we'll go take pictures of their ranch houses right on top of the mountain. 
Um, I've flown um, bales of hay in my Super Cub and dropped them out in remote locations or salt licks or whatever, whatever needs to be flown. Sometimes I'll fly them up some pizzas because they're in such a remote location and it's like a four hour drive into town. And so I'll, I'll, you know, ice cream and pizzas with dry ice and pizzas and load my airplane up with pizzas for the guys. And um, it's just, it's just fun to give back. And since I have the right kind of airplane, it just became natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now there's, um, 10 official flying cowboys and a bazillion unofficial flying cowboys, but uh, that, you know, I, I guess that's my flying cowboys origin story, but I'm willing to bet that if you asked all nine of the other ones that they would all have their own story, which is Some totally, be, totally okay. <laughs> right. Right. It's, that's kind of the coolest thing is that we found each other and we're really close friends. We all share common interests and, uh, we all want to keep each other safe. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really fun group. And, you know, lately we've kind of, you know, like, yeah, the social media thing is, is a big deal. People want to know that this is, this is different and new to a lot of people, this lifestyle that we have flying bush planes and doing the, you know, a lot of people hear flying cowboys and they think, oh, they must be a bunch of rule breakers or, or, you know, you know, whatever that is. But, you know, we're really, when it comes down to it, if you watch our videos or you get to know us, we're just a bunch of average guys doing things that we think is normal, but other people don't. And so I think that's more or less why it it has caught on. Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, every every great uh, organization has a little bit of mystery to their origin story. So that's all, uh, (laughs) that's all good no matter what. And now you've also evolved, though, to have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, fly-ins and different types of things that you're doing. Now that there's what the High Sierra one, the dead, the one that dead happens to dead cow and then the stole drags, which is crazy stuff. So tell me a little bit about the events that happen. Well, those, both of those events are the brainchild of the legendary Kevin Quinn. Now, here's a guy who comes from a professional hockey player background. No joke. He was a professional hockey player. And then he got out of that. He, and then he became a professional ski guide. And then that kind of evolved into heli skiing. And he became one of the most prolific and largest heli ski operators in Kent, in uh, Alaska. Oh my God. So being involved in, in, in Alaska, almost everybody in Alaska is a pilot. I don't know what the number is, but I think it's like, I don't know, 20% of everybody in Alaska is a pilot, you know, one out of five. Um, And so you're, you know, he's, he's obviously been a pilot for a dang long time. um, At least as long as I've known him, because that's how I met him. But um, I think I started attending high Sierra fly in, maybe in its fourth year, maybe third year. I'm not quite sure. Um, But it was back at a different location on a much smaller lake bed. And I was there for three, I think three years. And then we moved it to the the big lake bed. But really, you know, the High Sierra Fly-In is a special backcountry event because it's on a lake bed. So all levels, all skill levels can fly there. All different types of aircraft. I mean, we had a, a jet came come last year a pc24 Pilatus came wow. for a few hours we have seaplanes we have cessnas we have uh, you know all kinds of different turboprops show up and so and and you know the lake bed is i think gosh i think it's five and a half six miles long um but a group of guys in california mostly kevin 
and a small group of people. Uh, some of them are stole rats. No, there's a group called stole rats, coolest group of guys I know in California, but uh, they have purchased a good portion of this lake bed and they decided, Hey, let's have our own fly in because there really isn't a, uh, a fly in that really caters to all skill levels. That's a backcountry focused family friendly fly in. And then here comes Kevin saying, okay, now we have this fly-in. We've got several hundred people showing up. We have the space. And he starts to think to himself, and, and I've heard him tell this story. He's just kind of sitting around. I even think he said he was on the toilet. And he's like, how can we do, how can we, <laughs> this is kind of how it works with the Flying Cowboys. We're just on our think, we put on our thinking hat. <laughs> no, but <laughs> it's a great story. You, you should you should really have Kevin on. He's just a fantastic guy. But anyway, he uh, he thought, well, how do we take stole, which is a short takeoff and landing competition, and how do we take that to the next level? Because it's really cool as it is, but we have this dry lake bed. I wonder if we could race airplanes. And so he kind of refined the idea over the course of several years. And I think we had our first official race in 2015, and we've had it every year at High Sierra ever since. And I know he'd worked for years and years and got it, to, you know, approved at Reno and 16 pilots flew there or 15 pilots flew there last year at Reno as a demo. And now we became a official race class at the Reno Air Races. And now there's event venues all over the country and really all over the world that have taken a look at what they've done at the Reno Air Races and High Sierra Fly-In. And they're starting to think, hmm, maybe we can do this here at our little airport or our so little back fly. Back up for people. What is Stoll Drag? Like, like explain the race to me. Okay, so, yeah, I apologize. I should tell you what stole drag is. So, you basically take two aircraft and you line them up on a line, just like you would on a single aircraft on a stole competition, and they take off, and the course length is 2,000 feet long. In some venues, it might be longer or shorter, but a rule of thumb is about a 2,000-foot-long course if you want to set up your own course and practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, set up a course. You're flying two aircraft head to head, you take off, and then that 2,000 foot line, you land on or after that line. So now you're a stole competitor. You come to a complete stop on heading. Any, any differentiation or, or, or offset in your heading is a disqualification. And so you've got to stop on heading, complete stop with your tail wheel down, and then you turn around take off again. Now that start line that you started at becomes kind of a finish line. You land on or after that line. So now you've, you've taken off, you've landed, you've turned around, you've come back, you land on or after a line, you come to a complete stop on heading. The first aircraft that comes to a complete stop on heading wins. And so it's a head-to-head -head competition. Um, in qualifiers, if you have enough airplanes and you want to run like a qualifier around, you can do timed heats. So you can really race very diverse aircraft and just get a lot done through the race. Mm -hmm. And then you can find your top 16 and then do a bracket system. That's really how they do it at Reno and High Sierra is anybody can race during qualifiers and they'll just put anybody up side by side. And it doesn't really matter who wins when you're doing the qualifier runs. Your time is what matters. And so you want to just put in a really good time. But, now, do you try so the, to get airborne as quickly as you can? Or it almost with only 2,000 feet, I'm thinking like, could, do they keep their wheels on the ground basically for those 2,000 feet? Or what, how is no. it that, that, that you minimize that? So stole airplanes typically will take off in 200 feet-ish, plus or minus. 
um, the ground is drag, so you do not want to be on the ground. You want to get into the air as quickly as possible and get your airplane cleaned up. And so, you know, when you see stole competitors or, you know, maybe I should do a video or Kevin, Kevin, do a video, do a stole drag training video. <laughs> but, you know, you take off, you want to get in the air as quickly, as quick as possible because the ground and your bearings and your brakes and everything is drag. You want to get the airplane as clean as possible. So you get your flats retracted and everything as clean as possible. And then about maybe halfway down the course, you're at a thousand feet. You're approaching most of the, the fast competitors are approaching 110 miles an hour and only a thousand feet. So it's a fast race. And then it becomes an, uh, an exercise in energy management. So a lot of the pilots will kick their aircraft into a slip, exposing as much of the airframe into the wind as possible. So now instead of accelerating, you're trying to decelerate as quickly as possible and get into landing configuration. So you're dumping your flaps, you're putting your feet out, you're putting out parachutes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you're trying to dirty up the airplane as much as possible to then slow the airplane down so you can land on or after that line pretty much at stall speed so that you can get stopped as quickly as possible, get the airplane turned around and do it again. Wow. So one of the coolest things I think about stall drag is that none of those things that I just mentioned are mystical, magical pilotage powers. These are all basic skills, taking off, getting the airplane cleaned up, a forward slip, getting the flaps out, a spot landing, maintaining directional control and discipline, stopping on heading, turning around and doing it again. Those are all basic skills. Now they're just performed at a higher level of competency, but just like anything else, it's something you can practice and get into. And so that's one of the things that I think uh, is so much fun watching stole drag. And you know, you can get on YouTube and see lots and lots of videos of, of these airplanes doing these drag races. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, oh my gosh, as a, as a pilot, can I do that in my 172? You bet. We have 172s that make the Sweet 16 at High Sierra Flying. Wow. It just really comes down to, are you, are you competent in your aircraft? And can you, can you master that airframe around you and wear it like you're putting on gloves? Wow. Wow. But, you know, is... it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful concept. I, I, I think it's going to continue to grow and be an amazing part of our, our aviation community. Um, I hope to see it at all the big events. You know, we're, you know I don't want to mention any names, but Oshkosh and Sun and Cloud would be really kind of <laughs> really cool venues, I think, because I go to those every year. And I, you know, as a fan of aviation, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a backcountry insider, but as just a fan of aviation, I'd really love to see it for selfish reasons because it's just so much fun. Um, and one of the things that I've seen is it's starting to um, ignite the passion in guys that are flying normal airplanes that are, that are kind of like, you know, I'm kind of tired of the $100 hamburger thing. What am I going to do with my airplane now? Well, now you have a reason to develop your fundamental skill set again. Right. Because it's, and then you're making it fun. You know, just this uh, last weekend up in Alaska, there was a fly-in and they drag raced their airplanes. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, <laughs> that is, uh, that is so, so cool. And I really, I'm with you. I, I hope that they do expand out and have some of that. And, sh uh, you know, it's interesting because I, even when I look at my own background in aviation, it's, it, my interest area has evolved through all that time of like, what is it that I used to, gravitate towards during the big fly-ins or get really excited about and really has changed quite a bit. And right now it 
very sincerely is getting over and same with my boys getting over to this the the lsa and the stole stuff that's going on because it's so grassroots and it's so stick and rudder pure kind of based and it also seems to have this um this, this variety to it where I can imagine that if I got into that and got proficient in one, I would want to keep trying different airplanes. Like it, it, the flavor of the week. It's kind of how like you start to see in the motorcycle world, how people you like get one, but then all of a sudden, poof, they've got 12. And it's, there seems to be a reason for that. It's not just separate missions. It's everyone's a little bit different. And um, uh, I mean, you've flown a lot of different planes. If you were to take and say ghost is not allowed to be on your winner list, oh, what are man. some of the most fun planes that you have flown that are in this category? Ooh. Oh my oh, gosh. Tough one. You know, if I couldn't own a carbon cub, <laughs> I said, <laughs> are you already, we already know because that's the are one you off. Right? There's no super cubs. There's okay. No super cubs at all of any flavor because I'm thinking, man, that SQ 12 is pretty sweet, but it's a super cub. <laughs> Okay, um, let's start uh, talking Kit Foxes and Highlanders and, right? and, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it would probably be a Highlander or a Kit Fox. Those are some awesome airplanes. Uh, uh, I, I really enjoy the tandem seat aspect of the, uh, the cub because I like, I like being able, you know, for me, it's a visibility thing. I like that cockpit. I like being on center line um, and I like being able to look and see both tires mm, in a kit fox or a highlander you're off center line you're still flying a stick and rudder airplane but you're a little bit off center line now if you have a, a really cute girlfriend you know like jonas marcinko he's another youtuber who's got a really cute girlfriend and he sits her right next to him and you know if you want to sit next to somebody those side by sides are fantastic airplanes uh, i gotta tell you though you know uh, even the, the, the old certified airplanes, you know, you're talking about like Clippers and Taylor Craft and Huskies and they're I think all, your answer you know, to me is you can't, you're, you're, not, you're not coming up. May, may Highlander's about the best. We're know, I'm, really, I'm really having a hard time because airplanes are so cool. There's so many different things. It, you know, it, you're hitting me at a vulnerable moment here because now I'm starting to think my daughter in the next few years is going to be old enough to start taking flight lessons. Mm -hmm. And I think I might teach her in something like a, a pacer. Interesting. Yeah, um, because it's, it's not necessarily the best stole airplane, but it is, it can do short. It can, it can do backcountry, but it'll teach her, you know, it's underpowered. And I think learning energy management, it's not necessarily in my opinion, the best thing in the world to do is, is to jump into a super airplane like a, like a carbon cup, for example, is a, is a fantastic airplane. It's like the cream of the crop or the, the Zlin models or the, uh, the legend aircraft or, you know, there's, you know, right. the backcountry super cubs. There's so many wonderful super cubs and backcountry airplanes, but they spoil you as a pilot. Right. And I've right. seen some pilots, and I'm not saying everybody's guilty of this, but sometimes they let the performance of the aircraft make up for bad piloting skills. Absolutely. Or Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes down to my daughter. I want her to learn in an underpowered airplane. So she has to learn to appreciate the high performance airplanes. Excellent. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but to me that really strikes and hits home 
and I think the pacer is a good middle of the road, like a, not a not a modified pacer like you see up in Alaska with big bush wheels on it and VGs and high horsepower. I'm talking a stock pacer with the short short wing and you know something where you know here in Utah in the summer we're looking at 9,000 foot density density altitudes at my home airport mm-hmm. so you're taking off and doing touch and goes and climbing at 150 200 feet a minute and earning those landings wow. you're learning about energy management you're learning about mountain wave and where to fly and where not to fly because your life literally does depend on it and these these uh these planes that are not built for the the back country uh, so it'll teach her really good skills that I think she'll have a, a healthy respect for the, for reading conditions and knowing aircraft performance. You yeah. know, I can't tell you that I've ever really looked at a performance chart in the Carbon Cub because I know that that thing can just rip off the ground and climb like my buddy Kevin says, a homesick angel. I mean, right. you just rip off the ground and start climbing at 1,700 feet a minute fully loaded, and that's really spoiling me as a pilot. Right. So long story short, I'd probably, if I was to purchase another airplane today and it was for that purpose, it would probably be a pacer. That's very interesting. Yeah. I think <laughs> we saw a couple of stall equipped planes show up at our local airport and one of them was a tri pacer that had been converted um, to being a, a, essentially a pacer. And then of course they put big tires on it and everything else. Oh, cool. But you've got a really, really good point. And as another kind of father of a student, uh, that's learning, and then Ben also will be getting started shortly, um, with his flight training. It's, it's true. You know, you want to learn the basics. You want to understand, you want to feel stick and rudder importance. You want to understand density, altitude, airport length. You don't want to be in anything dangerous, but you want to have some appreciation of it. And when we have higher end aircraft, whether it be uh, your carbon cub with, you know, all sorts of power and modifications that can do amazing things, it, you probably can get a little lax on the on the low end. I know on our end, we do a lot of traveling. We've got the the um, uh, Bonanza that we restored. And with a 300 horsepower engine, I mean, how, do you really need to do weight and balance? I mean, yes, you do. Right. But how are yeah. we ever loading it anywhere near the edge of the weight and balance envelope? No. So you don't get yeah. that same feeling of what does it really mean to take off on a hot, humid, high density altitude day because you don't want your child to figure that out for the first time alone. Right. Yeah. And it, it, to me, that's, that's where it strikes home is you, you know, and, and, and I kind of say that to like, I, I get a lot of messages from people. What's the best airplane for me? And I start to, I start to ask them questions. Well, what is it, you know, what's your current skill set? What's your background? You know, I want to, I want to know if they already have an understanding of these basic skills because the last thing I want to do is encourage somebody to get into something. And then, um, you know, they have some sort of failure, you know, the airplane's hitting on three out of the four cylinders and it's running really rough and you still have to climb out of that Canyon or at least limp along long enough to land on a sandbar or a, or an airport mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. It's, 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 it's definitely okay to learn in underperforming aircraft that are, you know, and I, I'm using, like the carbon cub or even your Titan T 51 with 350 horsepower on the front, that's a high performance aircraft. And so you're, you're, you're really just, just taking it back to basics and there's nothing wrong with that. In my mind, I have a healthy respect for, I, I don't know. I just love all airplanes. And I think that, yeah, I think I've said it. I think you just want to learn and, and, and learn all the things 
And don't right. just learn, you know, whipping that throttle forward and two and a half seconds later, you're off the ground and you've taken off in 78 feet like we do in the Oshkosh Stole Demo. Right. It's, there's, there's a lot of things that get you to that level of competency and, and trust with your equipment and trust with the conditions. You know, a lot of the times we're landing there in a 15 mile an hour crosswind that on the books exceed a lot of the crosswind component of those aircraft that we're flying. And how right. are we able to do that? Well, we're using our backcountry techniques. We're flying into the wing. We're using a, or if we're flying into the wind. We're using the crab angles. You know, the, that, that grass strip at Oshkosh is nice and wide. So even though it's a 15 mile an hour or not crosswind component that exceeds the, the Piper Cubs capabilities, well, we're cheating a little bit because we know what we're doing. And right. so it's those little things, those skill sets you learn as a pilot that you can't learn by just shortcutting. You, you right. pay the price, you go through the process, you acquire the skill, and then you do the fun stuff. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's, you know, we, it's, it's been said over and over and over that good pilots are always learning. And that's what this is all about, because it, the learning is also the exploring and, and expanding into all these fascinating, fascinating areas. And um, it's just, it's so cool to hear it. I hope that when I'm able to get the bush wheels on the Mustang, which is already in my head, I'm thinking like, yeah, we can disable the gear. I can find a way to put big tires on that. Hold on a second, boys. Let's see. Like, we, we can make it happen for a trip out there. And I I know we can show up at High Sierra in this thing. We I know we can make that happen. Well, no, with your stock small tires, just show up at High Sierra, and then we'll load all you guys up into, I guess it's only a two-seater, huh? You'll bring the bonanza to High Sierra with your whole family and we'll put all of you guys in bush planes and then we'll go have fun in the backcountry. You know what? We'll have at least one or two other licensees in the family by that point. So both planes will come out there and then I want to get in awesome. and get to see what some real stall flying is uh, uh, doing that with you. Uh, really, really fantastic. Corey Robin, thank you so, so much for joining us tonight on Social Flight Live. I really do appreciate it. I would love to do some more work with you in the future. Uh, for everyone who is joining us, you can see more of Corey Robin at CoreyRobin.com and also on his YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to it. A quick search on Flying Cowboys. Corey Robin um, will get you everything that you need to know. And there is just so many cool videos out there. And so, again, thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. It's awesome. It's an honor. So for everyone else, uh, we will be back with more exciting things. You know, we talked about mountain flying. Well, let's see. June 16th, Kirby Chambliss, uh, aerobatic champion and Red Bull race champion will be joining us. That is next Tuesday night at 8 p.m. On June 23rd, we have Mike Bush coming back. going to be a great night. We're going to talk all about analytics from engine monitoring and predictive maintenance. It's a great way to manage your aircraft. I can say that as an AMP and IA. I am fascinated with the work that Mike Bush does. That'll be an exciting night on June 23rd. June 30th, we're going to have mountain flying night with Colin Aro and some other folks that are going to come on and learn those exact types of techniques. You'll come away learning a few things you need to know about mountain flying. Until next time, be sure to check out socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps. And please... Be safe, fly safe, keep flying, blue skies. Good night.